Since its inception at Into, the site formerly run by Grindr, Hola Poppy has become the community's favorite advice column. And now, John Paul Brammer, the man behind Hola Poppy, has brought his trademark wit and heart to a new essay collection of the same name. I think that JP has such an interesting look into the inner minds of queer people and non-queer people as you'll hear. People write to JP about their deepest worries and their innermost dreams for their lives. It's the things we don't talk about with our friends because they seem too private, too embarrassing or personal maybe, and yet as JP shows in his book, there is a common thread between all of us. All of our anxieties, our hopes, our fears, they look pretty darn similar. That is what John Paul Bramer's work exposes and what we'll be talking about today, so let's hear it. From The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with John Paul Bramer, author of Ola Poppy. You know, many people know you from Ola Poppy, which you've been doing for almost four years now. How has taking over this advice-giving role changed how you handle and think about things in your own life? You know, interestingly enough, not that much, just because the, you know, the column really started out as a parody, as a sort of satire. And I thought I was just going to do that the whole way through. And then once I started receiving letters that were a little bit more serious and hitting on issues that, you know, really hit me in my heart, I was like, oh gosh, I have to start taking this column more seriously. So I think that that evolution for me was the biggest part, that idea that like, I could maybe be a mentor figure for someone out there and that I wanted to do more good than harm in those situations. And yeah, it made me a more ethical citizen of the internet for one, and also kind of made me realize that we are all sort of mentors to someone, whether we know it or not, and we have to be careful. I think like the dirty secret of advice columns is that you don't really give advice. Mm-hmm. Yep. If someone's dating an abusive boyfriend, yeah, sure, tell them to break up with them. But like, if I were to ask how to repair my relationship with my father, like there's not an easy prescription there. Oh, exactly. Yeah, I'm wondering, like, how do you think about what your role is in answering questions? Yeah, I had the idea of the advice column as, you know, you get a question and you try to help that person. But I realized very quickly, I was like, but I'm inviting hundreds and hundreds of other eyeballs into what this column is going to end up being when it gets published. And that sort of turns it into this other kind of object. It exists on the internet. It's sort of there for a bunch of other people to relate to more so than just trying to fix this one specific person's life. And I don't think that that's a bad thing necessarily. It's just a realistic thing. You're probably not going to hit the nail on the head 100% of the time and fix this person's life with your little piece of content on the internet. (laughs) But that doesn't mean the advice column can't be a worthwhile vehicle for expressing sincere sentiments and maybe helping people tease things out and maybe helping people explore themselves in a deeper way. So that's how I've always approached my columns. I see it as more an avenue for the kind of writing I enjoy, more so than me actually trying to like reach in and solve someone's problems. So it's like making sure people are heard. Yeah. And also maybe like the question itself is important. Like, oh God, I'm not the only one with daddy issues. Like, shocker. Oh, absolutely. And I think that the column's roots in, you know, originally it was being pushed out through Grinder had a lot to do with that. I didn't realize at the beginning that there were so many people out there using Grinder who just felt lonely and wanted to be heard. Of course, it makes sense when you think about it. But there were a lot of people who just wanted someone to talk to about some deeper things that were afflicting them. And, you know, people from parts of the world where maybe they don't have a visible out 
LGBTQ community or people they can immediately lean on. So they want that friend at the bar that they can just talk to and complain to. And it was really cool to sort of fill that niche. I think it's really easy for people like us in big cities to like roll our eyes and scoff at Grindr. But for these more rural places, you know, it's like a lifeline to find community. Oh, yeah. And I think that like Grindr is such a through line of my book because I come from rural Oklahoma where I was like, constantly looking for people to connect with, you know, be it physically or emotionally. And I totally understand how we can end up using technologies like uh, a hookup app to try to find something deeper, try to find something more meaningful. I love the scene in the book where someone is telling you what Grindr is Mm -hmm. and like its purpose, because we came of age as Grindr was invented and it was this new thing. Mm -hmm. And I can't really imagine what it's like for young 16-year-olds, 18-year-olds to come out and, and have that, to be able to get on the app. Yeah. I have to wonder what that's like as well, because I remember when I was first coming out, it was still in that transition phase where we had stuff like the Adam for Adam and there were a lot of Craigslist personal ads and stuff like that. Places that feel, in retrospect, a lot more dangerous <laughs> for one reason or another. But it, yeah, I feel like we had a lot more worse options just lying around for us. And I wonder how that sort of impacted the way we view things like sex and intimacy and desire in the first place. And I think, too, like so many queer people view themselves as an outsider. Potentially now, I don't don't know if I'm making making false connections, but like with Grindr, you can be 16 and see that I'm not the only gay person in my city. And like, do you are you able to feel like less of an outsider now? I don't know. I I I really should talk to more (laughs) younger queer people about their experiences because I'm very interested in it Um, because my column like the people who write into my column are mostly like middle-aged lesbians who I love. <laughs> like, that's my primary really? readership. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I guess there are also a lot of bi-teen girls who I stand that read my column. But it's just been funny, like, watching the people who read my column and who writes in, because ostensibly you would think it would be primarily for gay men, but I've kind of found that it's not so. <laughs> are there, like, recurring themes that you see over and over again? Yeah, I would say a really common letter that I receive is just about loneliness. Just the vague feeling of not having someone around and wishing that you did and wondering what's wrong with you. The theme of what's wrong with me is very recurring, I would say. Sort of like, why am I not making friends? Why am I not finding a significant other? Why do I feel so uncomfortable navigating my identity? And I think that that really speaks to the sense of otherness that is still very prevalent to this day when it comes to LGBTQ people, that you're sort of wrestling with something that you don't quite understand, you know there's something different about you, and you just want someone to hear you out about it and sort of affirm to you that, like, no, you belong here, or there's nothing wrong with you, or this is all part of the process of figuring yourself out. Lots of reassurance, (laughs) I found, is needed. Oh, that kind of goes to what you write about being in high school and getting a job at a Mexican restaurant. You write because you didn't feel like you were Mexican enough. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, is that something that you still feel and experience in your life? Oh, yeah. I think that if we really closely observe it all, we all to some extent feel like we're not quite who we're presenting as or we're not quite who we were told we were. When it comes to my culture and my family history, it was really interesting because I sort of grew up in the shadow of that American immigrant narrative where, yes, my grandparents were really stigmatized, really had a hard time assimilating 
struggled with English, dropped out of school very early in my abuelo's case. And my abuelo's case was the first in his family to go to college and was ostracized for it in his family. So it was just interesting to me growing up in, for example, like just having a house with air conditioning and a house with two stories in it was a huge deal to me because my abuelos, I knew, didn't have that. During the winter and the summer, when it was really hot or really cold, they would come stay with us because their house would just become basically unlivable. So having that direct access to this world that was so different from the one that I was in and sort of navigating both of them sort of enveloped me in a crisis, and I didn't really know what all went into it. For example, I thought it was purely a race thing when I was little. Later, I figure out, of course, there's also a class component, there's an immigrant component, there's so many things going on in it, and trying to figure that stuff out when you're just a kid can lead you to some really ridiculous decisions, like mine, for example, of thinking that if I worked at a tortilla factory, I would figure myself out and I would be more comfortable with myself. Although I would say I learned a lot of valuable life lessons there. So if you didn't learn that at the Tortilla Factory, like, like where did you begin to learn that? Well, you know, growing up in rural Oklahoma, I wasn't just one of the only Mexicans around. I was one of the only people around in my immediate area. I was just like, my neighbors were cows and I didn't have a whole lot of community around me. And so just growing up and meeting new people, like, for example, I started meeting people whose Mexican families looked nothing like mine. Maybe their grandparents didn't struggle in the way mine did, and they had, you know, good jobs, and they had money. And I remember the first Mexican I met whose grandparents were rich, and I was like, that can happen? <laughs> uh, it was like this revelation that, of course, people's experiences are so different across different gradients and across different, like, lives. It was really wild for me. And so just opening my mind in that way, not only to the unique privileges that other people have, but the ones I have and the ones that people wouldn't be able to relate to my Mexican experience, even though we're both technically Mexican. And I think that goes for any identity, really. I mean, just for same with gay people, you know, there's so many different kinds of gay people. And the more you meet, the more it makes you question yourself and leads you to some fruitful answers, I think. Yeah, I, I get frustrated when people say that being gay is cool nowadays. And I'm like, I, I think that we're talking actually only about like a specific kind of gay. Yeah, You know, I don't absolutely. think it's like all gayness or all queerness by any means. Exactly. Yeah, it's so hard to paint a monolith out of a group of people because we're all so different. I'm sure that as you see with like the letters, I think that the vast majority of people kind of feel like they're not the right kind of gay person. Oh, yeah. I think when I was growing up and coming into my own gayness, the big trend was like feeling like you weren't masculine enough and feeling like you needed to pass as straight better. And nowadays, because I live in New York and I'm in this other pocket of the world where I work in media and, you know, we're all very educated on things, the other, the opposite sort of comes in where it's like, am I not expressing myself enough? Am I too ashamed to be feminine? Am I too ashamed to put my interests out there and be the swishy person that I want to be because of internalized homophobia or internalized misogyny? So I think it happens from all directions, really. It's just, it's something that people really struggle with, wondering how to navigate their identity in that way. That's such a great point, because if a gay person does not want to express their femininity or doesn't, you know, feel like that is who they are, that also doesn't mean that they're anti-femme. Yeah, and that's sort of like what my chapter is about when I was trying to go to those New York parties. And I grew up with an interest in fashion just because my mom had a lot of fashion magazines around the house. I was smuggling copies of Vogue under my bed. And I always thought, okay, this is nice, but it's not on the table for me because, you know, in my environment in Oklahoma, it's just was out of the question. And then I come to New York and I find this place where, you know, in this little corner of the world, dressing that way is celebrated and breaking gender boundaries is celebrated. And I thought, oh God, I could have been doing this all along. I'm so behind. 
and that crisis of like, I want to express myself now and dressing up in a different way and realizing, but wait, I have broad shoulders and I'm quite like hairy and this doesn't feel right on me. And just the weird body politics that go into queerness and representation and how you present to the world. It's endlessly fascinating to me. And of course, there are no clear cut answers, but I, I like diving into it as best as I can. I have a group of friends who like, they like nothing more than to like go for like a weekend upstate and like wear dresses and wigs and put on like makeup. And I kind of realized a couple of years ago, like I just have no desire to do that. <laughs> I love drag race. I feel zero desire to put on a wig or to put on makeup and then I have to take the makeup off and like have like clothes in my closet. I only wear like, it's like, I just have no desire. Oh, makeup is so annoying. I don't know how people do it. I love the way it looks on other people. Right. But so like every year um, I do a day of the dead celebration in Mexico with family and we get our faces painted. And the worst feeling for me is like having to get that freaking skull off my face and I have to use all these wipes and I'm just clawing at my face trying to get it off. And it's just like, how do the queens do this? <laughs> Every day. Every day, yeah. And as like the beauty industry has talked about more and more in the last couple of years, and more in public at least, like mm -hmm. our standards of beauties, the ideals are more like Eurocentric features. And mm -hmm. that is not dissimilar to like the gay world of like what is being prized or like gay white traits. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, that is certainly something that we need to tackle better. When you think about like who the ideal cisgender white gay man is, a picture definitely crops up. And it's something that I've certainly been living with for a long time. And I have my privileges adjacent to it. It scares me sometimes to think about just how held hostage we are by the collective attitudes of what's in and what's not in. So I remember, like right now, I feel pretty good about being a bigger person, but growing up, I was like, this is the worst thing ever. <laughs> I hate this. Wait, are you saying you feel better about it now? Because now it's kind of like, a, like I don't want to say trendy, but now it is like kind of more trendy, like quote unquote, thicker guys. Yeah, there's this weird window of acceptance for a certain kind of bigger person. I mean, it's certainly not on the table for fat people right now, but it's like there's this certain fetishization of, oh, you're thicker, you're bigger. That's cool. That's hot. It's like daddy. And these attitudes constantly shift and change, and it's just scary to realize that, you know, one day <laughs> there could just be something else for you to worry about because everyone says it's wrong. I mean, you, you brought up a great point, too, that while the internet loves thick thighs right now and, like, like a beefy guy, this sounds disgusting, but it's only so far that people want. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, it's still got these, like, criteria that make one acceptable for, like, praise and to be called hot. Whereas, you know, it's like... You look at fat guys who have been embracing that trend for a very long time now and sort of celebrating their thickness, and then it's like, no, those people actually aren't included. We actually aren't into those people. And I'm talking, of course, about this really collective, exclusive attitude present in some people. Not everyone's like that, but still, it's prevalent, and that's upsetting. I get really uncomfortable with a lot of posts highlighting larger people when the person doing the highlighting is smaller, because I kind of think it's like, oh, you're using like the fat person to feel okay about your tiny belly. And like, we're using like big people to make ourselves feel better. And then the people they use as examples of big people are always like, really? <laughs> you, you think that's a big person? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the internet's bad for your brain. It's bad for your self-esteem. I'm trying to like limit my Twitter and Instagram usage these days. How is that going? Not succeeding. Not succeeding. Well, I'm like locked in my house all the time. So I just get bored and I'm like, God, I wonder what the gays are up to when I log on. <laughs> Well, tell me this. What percentage of questions are about love? Um, I would say at least half. An even larger percent are just about love in the abstract. Like questions that they don't know are about love, but kind of are. Oh. 
I get some sometimes where they're like, I'm jealous that this friend of mine just got a boyfriend and they'll go on to maybe like describe how attractive that friend is and maybe describe like how much they think about this friend. And I'm like, I think you have a crush on this person (laughs) and maybe you just weren't recognizing it. A lot of it is just like, you know, my partner, why am I single? How do I get over this person? It's a very common sentiment. I think that any questions that I would have about love or relationships are ones that you can't answer. Honestly, questions about love are hard to answer because I've been in love. I am not in a place to listen to any advice when I'm in love. So it's just like, who is this for? (laughs) In the book, you write about pretty severe bullying in middle school. What advice would Ola Poppy have for that guy, that younger you? Oh, gosh. You know, I was just in such a completely different headspace back then that any advice would have just (laughs) bugged me. So many of my problems back then were related to just the environment I was in and people not being willing to accept certain kinds of people or certain kinds of behaviors. And I don't think anything I was doing warranted that treatment. And so I think my advice would be what I did, just get through it, push on through and try to think of the people who are there for you in life and think of the people who make you feel supported and loved. But I was such a weird kid. I don't think any of that would have landed on me. Weird how? I don't know. I was just out there. I remember very clearly being a kid and just living very much in my own world. The way I see things now were just not the way I saw things back then. I was very much in like this haze type situation where a lot of things just didn't reach me the way it might reach other people. And I think that's just because, you know, I was different. I had different needs and I had different ways of seeing things. And that's ultimately okay. And I just wish that had been okay for more people back then. Well, with you being trying to, like, date women, you do have a really fascinating chapter about your first girlfriend. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Which I really appreciated because I think it helps complicate, like, the gay narrative. And you might not expect in, like, this book by Ola Poppy. Why was it important for you to include that? I just think that that's a subject that we don't talk about enough or that we haven't quite figured out how to approach. Because I was hearing a lot, like, when I was first coming out about the whole gold star gay stuff. Like, I've never done anything with a woman, etc., And I really wanted to dig into my relationship with my girlfriend at the time just because I thought there's a lot there. There's more texture there and there's more richness there than I would have thought. Because after we broke up and I later came out in life, I sort of dismissed that part as not a real legitimate aspect of my life. I was like, I was pretending to be someone else. I was sort of going through a charade. It doesn't reflect who I really am. But then I look back and I think, no, I think it was. I think it was an important pivotal part of my life and I want to explore it as I would any other part of my life. Yeah, it was still you and you still like learn things from it. Yeah, and I think in any relationship you have messiness like that, whether or not it's dissonance between attraction or it's dissonance in the emotional sense. Because the funny thing is, me and her, we got along really great. I looked forward to talking to her all the time. We had a really strong emotional connection and I felt very attached to her in a way that felt very much like love. It's just that at the end of the day, When it comes to physical attraction, I really couldn't get there because I'm a homosexual man. (laughs) But I still found that I learned a lot of things from that relationship. And I'm very reluctant to dismiss any relationships I had with women in the past that veered into the romantic context just because, oh, okay, that wasn't really me. I was gay. Didn't know what I was doing. Complete mistake. No, it was very much an enriching experience in my life. I mean, I think that when you like are 13 or 14 and you kind of put the whatever together of like what sex is, then the, like the second thought is, oh, my God, everyone's having sex all the fucking time except for me. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And there was real pressure. 
where I was growing up to sort of do that just because where I come from, people get married very early. It's very common to just marry a high school sweetheart. My parents were high school sweethearts in Cache, Oklahoma. So I was very much used to the idea of like, okay, you find your person and then you get married. And part of that narrative that had nothing to do with my homosexuality back then was me wondering like, is this my person? Am I going to marry you now? Because we're dating and this is around the time that in our town where people date, we sort of end up together. It was... It was a lot of pressures that come with being in a rural, kind of small-town environment. Oh, that's such an interesting factor I hadn't thought about. That you're in high school wondering, is this the one? Yeah, it was a very common thought. I mean, I know people who did have kids immediately after high school, some during high school, where I'm from, and just talking about getting married, and, you know, some of them did. And I kind of thought, well, okay, is this what I'm supposed to do? But also... The other factor of about where I'm from is that you do have your people who you can tell are just going to move away one day and they're going to try to go to a bigger school and they're going to try to go to a bigger city. And I was definitely among those people where it was just sort of like, okay, I'm not going to stay here forever. I need to get out of here. I always wonder about how growing up, I grew up in the South as well, and like having behavior and voice and having that policed and I was always described as like a loud person and a feminine person. I always wonder like if I hadn't experienced all that like what would my personality be like now like would i be louder would i be more feminine and then i also then later realized in the last couple of years like oh actually everybody in america is having their behavior policed it's not just the queer kids absolutely yeah that's something i think about a lot because i often thought it was unique to lgbtq people then i find that you know <laughs> in writing about the straight world i'm like oh my goodness straight people have to go through so much to just like act a certain way present a certain way. Like I talk about a little bit in the fashion chapter about me trying to present as a straight guy and what that entailed and the clothes I had to wear and the things I had to say. And I was like, God, this is just a lot. <laughs> yeah. The majority of the stories in the book are from your youth. They're more like vulnerable stories of people like trying to figure out their, their careers, their relationships, all these things and struggling with that, striving to make it in life. Do you consider yourself to like still be striving or was that just like purposely for this one book you wanted to present that? Yeah, I think especially in the narrative of this book, because obviously the memoir doesn't tell my whole life story. It tells a handful of stories that kind of together cohere to make a point and have something to say. And I found it very important in this book to portray <laughs> the version of me that was trying super hard to make it in life, that was trying super hard to have a writing career, to not have to move back to Oklahoma, to just find a way to make things work. Because I think that's a really interesting narrative, the way you go from being that vulnerable kid where a lot of bad things happen to you and kind of determining, okay, I need to be the opposite of this. I need to work really hard. I need to lose weight. I need to find the right guy. Like all these questions that come into our heads and the sort of childhood trauma that pushes us to continue trying to be better and better and better all the time. And that's sort of what my first chapter about the rabbit is. <laughs> it's just me going back to my middle school after feeling pretty successful, having a nice writing job, having the column, and going back and realizing that this school that I've put at the very center of my life as the sort of driving force behind why I want certain things, why I want money, why I want success, why I want, you know, whatever it is, was just a school all along and wasn't actually interested in me. It wasn't actually the final boss battle <laughs> and how like liberating and disappointing that was at the same time. Most of my chapters portray that sort of striver version of me because I thought it was a nice little touch. And I guess to the audience that you're speaking to with the book, it's 
more relatable in that way. It'd be like, hey, I'm in this with you. I also don't have it figured out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think anyone who reads my book will not walk away thinking that I have it all figured out, <laughs> which is good, which is kind of what I wanted. How, how, how close is that to like accurate though? Like, do you <laughs> like <laughs> like do you feel like you have it all figured out now? I think I'm like most people in that I figured out some things and I haven't figured out other things. I think that we all hold different kinds of wisdom, and it just depends on where we channel it and what we show to the world and what we hide. So I think that this book represents a pretty good collection of things I have figured out. So maybe it does reflect on me as a person who's maybe has a lot of wisdom, but I don't really, especially when it comes to other things. Well, it's like you pick and choose what you figure out, right? Like um, the person who wrote Ola Poppy had it together enough to like put a book proposal together and to sell a book and publish a book. Oh my God. Do you ever see those memes on Twitter that are like, this can't be the same brain I had when I was doing calculus homework and like three other kinds of homework in middle school or high school, or like this can't be the same body I used to like travel to Europe and stay in hostels. This idea that like in the past you had a certain different kind of toughness or a different kind of ability or a different kind of wisdom than you do now is really interesting to me because yeah, sometimes I look back at myself and I think like, wow, how did you do that? <laughs> how did you overcome that? Because I feel weaker in some respects <laughs> and unable to do the same thing nowadays. Well, I think that that's going to be like the general consensus about the last year in the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Four years from now, it's going to be like, how the fuck did we do that? Yeah, how on earth did I push through that time? And I think about this a lot, actually, because I think it's actually good, not for the general population, but for me specifically, that we were just kind of told in one month increments that things were just going to keep going the way they were. Because if you had told me a year plus ago, how long this was going to last, I would be like, I don't think I can do it. <laughs> I don't know if I can go that long and live like this, but you know, you just, you do it by doing it. <laughs> I think that's a great place to leave it. Thank you for taking time. This is so fun. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great, great time. <laughs> I love to talk. <laughs> and that was John Paul Brammer. His new book, Ola Poppy, is edited by the great Zach Knoll at Simon & Schuster. Ola Poppy is out now. And then if you enjoyed this conversation, as always, please tell your friends, post about us on social media, help us spread the word. It is the biggest way you can help our show continue to grow. We're on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. Come find us. We love hearing from you every week. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine and partnership with Glad. I'm Jeffrey Masters. I will see you next week. Bye.